Uh, our topic has been uh, free, freedom from choice. Freedom from choice. The way we understood the original fall of man was based on the fact that he removed himself from a level where he wouldn't be able to fall prey to the temptations, seductions of an irrational world. He may err intellectually, but he never distort consciously because of a bias in his emotional world. He would not know of good and evil, he'd only know of true and false. He could make a small error in what is true and what is false, but it wouldn't be because his intention was distorted. However, Adam's original decision to eat of the tree, which was a decision which he thought was the correct choice to make since he'd be able to worry to succeed, reach a level way above that of the angels, by having the potential to do evil and yet choose to do good. Whereas in the world of absolute clarity, the desire to do evil was non-existent and hence the resistance from it would not be so well rewarded. He essentially would be the same as the Malach. He made this choice and the, the choice to put himself in that situation took him by surprise and amidst that world of the power of the body and the emotional over the intellect he quickly lost his hold on true and false as expressed in both him and his wife's embarrassment of being naked. Prior to the sin, they were both fully clothed. What were they wearing? They were wearing their bodies. They understood clearly the distinction between the essential selves and the clothing that covered their beings. However, after eating of the Eitadath Tevarah, the tree of good and evil, the distinction between where the self lay became distorted and there was a part of them that identified even with the skin and bones the flesh of who they were as being expression themselves and hence they felt naked and needed clothing so their dissension into the world of choice created a loss of identity with the essential spiritual self and a distorted sense of self which became a confused amalgam of body and soul intermixed in a struggle and conflict of the soul trying to gain, regain control and the body fighting for its own dominion over the soul. So the choice that Adam made was I'll engage in the struggle. I won't isolate myself from the possibility of purity from the possibility, sorry, of impurity. I will not retain my elevated status in the world of true and false. I'll descend into the world of good and bad and I'll come out okay and he didn't, he failed. The Alta Navadok carries on the theme through all the generations, the fall at Sinai, and then he makes it in his times rather current. He's speaking during the First World War and he describes what he calls the role of the yeshiva in the Jewish community and the shift that he experienced while he was alive. Until he came along, the previous generations, there was a close and reciprocal relationship 
between the yeshivas and the Jewish community at large. The relationship was such that the Jewish community sought to feed its finest members to the yeshivas in order to train them and steep them in the wisdom of Torah. And as a result, the yeshivas would then provide the Jewish communities with the knowledge and the leadership which maintained the continuity of Torah throughout. And this reciprocity would ensure Jewish continuity and a knowledgeable Jewish people. However, bemoans the altar of Nevadoc that things changed radically in the modern era. A entire, perhaps influenced by the currents that were blowing around in the world at the time, an entire new relationship started to develop. No longer was there a given that the Jewish community and the yeshivas were involved in a reciprocal relationship. But what began then was the beginning of an extreme conflict. That the Jewish community not only didn't give of their best to become steeped in wisdom within the yeshiva community, instead they tried to withheld. And as a result, the yeshivas were left with fewer students because the cream of the Jewish crop were encouraged to leave the field of the study of Torah to engage in the study and pursuit of secular wisdom. And therefore, the yeshivas became diluted both from without and subsequently from within where the Bokhi themselves, once they got into yeshiva, were internally confused and conflicted as to where their priority should lie. Should they devote themselves single-mindedly to the pursuit of Torah or perhaps would it be better for them to balance themselves out with a mixture of the study of secular wisdom combined with Torah so it says the altar Nevada what can we do? The wind that blows around us, the one of reckless atheism, becomes so strong. Again, this is talking about in the beginning of the 20th century. I have no idea what words <laughs> the altar would have to describe the present situation. That spirit becomes strengthened day by day in the world. And as a result, many people are pulled away to live a life which is antithetical to that of Torah. We have to find a way to save the purity and maintain the continuity of the Jewish people lest they become drowned in the current they get stronger day by day lest they become sunk in the mighty waves which crash around us
The only solution, says the Alta of Navardic, I can think of, is to redesign the way the yeshivas should be. Previously, the yeshivas were porous in their communal nature. They could absorb and expel. There could be an interrelationship, even a close one, between the larger community and the yeshiva itself. However, based on the fact that now the external world becomes hostile, we have to shift our perspective. He quotes a pasuk in Tehillim which says, Achas Nishal, there's one request we have, to dwell in the heart of Hashem all the days of our lives. No longer can we in any way connect with the world around us because the world has gone too far away from us. And we have to emphasize that now the world and the yeshiva are two things which are completely and utterly hostile and in conflict with one another. And the only way to escape from the insidious and constant influence that the world wields over us is to distance ourselves ever further from the external world. When the entire train has been overtaken in a state of emergency by the military forces and we need to travel, the only place that we can hide is to buy ourselves a ticket in the first class compartment. We have to make ourselves more and more isolated within the four cubits of Alocha. And each and every person should isolate himself to develop his potential and his traits without any distractions. We have to recreate a true internal compass that hasn't been influenced by the world around and this will provide us with direction and guidance in the life ahead of us. Only then, once we've re-established and redefined the role that Yeshiva should play, can we hope to produce any kind of continuity to perpetuate Jewish survival. And therefore, we have to leave at all costs any kind of compromise. And the choice that stands in front of us is an absolute one. Either to choose the way of Torah or else to choose the world. But the integration of both of those together is no longer a possibility. And in fact, says the altar of Nevadok, that was ultimately the choice of Adam. Because he was placed in a situation where he could live in a world of clarity or he could plunge himself into a world of confusion and darkness and hope to come out on top. But his mistake was that when a person's mind becomes influenced by the many powers that are in the world outside and where the 
slippery serpent is there to seduce and to tempt, inevitably the descent will come. And from Adam's mistake, we have to learn not to be seduced. That any connection and any involvement in that world will only harm us. So let's not kid ourselves. Let's not fall into the seductive temptations of the serpent and understand that we have to separate ourselves and don't make it hard for yourself isolate yourself from the world and become more and more self-imposed exile don't feel that you won't be able to maintain this level because the truth is the place where a person fails the most is when he has to make decisions. The more decisions that a person has to make, the less things are cut and dried. The more ambiguous life becomes, the more room there is for error. The more things are categorical, the more things are defined in absolute terms, the greater the chance of success are. For example, he says, think about the Chukas Torah. Think about the, the laws of the red heifer, the Paraduma, where a person has no capacity to grasp what they mean. When he goes to fulfilling the mitzvahs of Paraduma, he'll never make an error. Because his own personal biases have nowhere to go. Because he can't rationalize one way or another how the halakhic mechanism is operating. And therefore, his internal bias to one side or another becomes completely irrelevant. Same thing with twilling. person suddenly says, I think that twilling should be a little less square than square. You don't know why twilling are square. You have no idea what twilling is square. You know they have to be square, so you make sure they're square. You don't, you don't know why they have to be black. You know they have to be black, so you make sure they're black. In any area where your own mind can't grasp it, that's when you can succeed. And you can do things without falling into the trap of bias. The problem is, in the areas where you think you understand, then all of a sudden, aha, justification, rationalization. You make something which is pure, impure. Something which is right, wrong. Something which is wrong, right. Because our minds are so efficient at justifying what we do, that we will come up with an entire philosophy in terms of why our lives are right. And the marshal that the Altenavadok oft did use was the one of the king that goes for walk within the forest. And to his surprise, when he looks upon a mighty tree, he sees a target being drawn and within the center of the target he sees an arrow that's been shot in the bull's eye. Astounded by the accuracy of the marksman, he keeps on walking and to his astonishment he comes across another tree with another target with another arrow in the bull's eye. 
And after the third tree, he says, even more deeply, moved by the accuracy of the archer, and then the archer appears before him. He comes out from behind a tree, and he looks at him and he says, tell me, Sir Archer, from where did you gain the skill that every single time you shoot the arrow, it goes directly into the bull's eye? To which the marksman replied, the sly smile upon his lips, Your Highness, be simple. First I shoot the arrow, and then go to the target. And you always get the bullseye that way. First I decide the life I'd like to live, and then I come up with a philosophy that is so apt and justifies it. That's only in the area where you can choose. In the area where it doesn't involve human intellect, things are clear-cut. The bias doesn't inhabit it. And therefore, were to be, were we to be in an environment where the lines of the Torah would be very clearly drawn, the distortions and the falling into the temptations of the modern world, which are so great and so powerful and so ever-present, would be possible. But when being bludgeoned on a 24-hour basis by the message's nuances and subliminal communication of the world around us, and then we hope to make a decision which we think is for our own good and rational, all we'll be doing is shooting the arrow in the direction we want and then drawing the target around it. The example that the altar brings is from Shlema Melech, that because the Torah revealed the reason of a king not having many wives, as they will distract his heart, they'll cause him to forget his obligations to the nation, he reasoned and rationalized. He says, I won't, I'll have the wives and I won't fall into the tra- trap. Had the Torah not stated the reason, but categorically stated, you cannot. He can, could never have rationalized. But because he could start to reason and rationalize, that's where the problems occurred. He said, no, I'm above that. I won't fall into the trap. And of course, there was a trap he fell into. The amazing thing is to the altar that the traits that even if a person would be upset with someone you'd never accuse him of, for example, a thief, a person that pursues fame, he'll never fall into again
the, the Gemara says that to reword it. The Gemara says that Kulam Ba'avak Shiloshin Hora. Rubum Begazel, most people at some point in time fall prey to theft and everyone somehow fails in some aspect of Loshin Hora. Says Alta, because those are the areas where rationalization is so rife. No, 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 says the office worker. Of course I can take these pens home for my children. The reason why they put them there is for me and my family. Oh no, speaking about that person isn't lost in horror because he deserves it. Or it's, it's true. <laughs> so in the areas where we are given control, the areas that we think we can understand, those are the areas where we fail and flounder. But of course we resist this. We are scared to give ourselves completely over to the Torah because we'll say that but we'll destroy our lives. We'll lose connection. We'll be removed from our status in society. And essentially we'll land up with nothing. Says Alta, the Torah tells you otherwise. It is called a person that flees from greatness. Hagadula, mechazeres achorav, greatness will pursue you. If you think it will bring you to negative things by keeping Torah, the pasuk in Kodesh says, "Shemer mitzvah lo yedo If you keep the mitzvahs, no harm will befall you. According to what the Torah says, by keeping the Torah, not only will you not lose, you'll gain. And it is only the illusionary seichel of man ready to seduce him that creates this irrational fear. Same thing with bitochen. When a person trusts in Hashem, you feel that you're precarious, that you're giving up. Ironically, the Pasuk says, Baruch the more you trust Baruch, you are blessed the more abundance you have so the way the Torah goes is very counterintuitive you think that by giving tzedakah you'd lose money the Pasuk says when you give Pasuk when you give tzedakah you'll become rich The whole thing comes out as follows. That as long as a person relies on his own thinking, he's susceptible to the temptations and the desires of the world. The minute he's able to give up his own thinking and subscribe to a higher form of wisdom, that's when he's able to access the truth and that's when he's able to become true to himself and access the wisdom of the Torah. And therefore, if a person tries to build his life, the last thing he can build his life on is his own decision-making process. That is the most unreliable instrument of navigating life. Because it is so distorted, so inaccurate, so self-serving in the lower sense, that the more a person relies on it, the more lost in life 
he'll become. Deep breath. Okay, the Alton Vardik is presenting a very, very strong position over here. His, his, his direction is clear. And we can understand, we can relate to what he says. That we all so susceptible to our own rationalizations. We all essentially do what we want to do. We do what we want to do. We've got no real strong desire to do what's truth. Truth doesn't even come into the picture. We want to do what works for us. Now, it happens to be that different things work for different people. So for some people, actually sitting and learning in Yeshiva may work for them. So they do it. So because they've got this grand vision that this is the right thing to do, no, it works. Some people it doesn't work for us, so they leave. It's not about truth, it's not about perpetuation, it's not about connecting to reality. It's about what I want. It's uncomfortable to want something which on a philosophical basis doesn't, 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 doesn't resonate with the with overarching philosophy that I may have. So, so I explain away why this way of living actually is completely consistent with what I want to do. But all we're doing is we're just perpetuating life to life to ourselves. And finding vehicles of expression for our will in the context that we choose. So people may respond and say, okay, well that's, that's who we are. The truth-seeking generations, like they, the last of the survivors are, are nearing their 80s. Or like the 60s, just wake up. We're not, we're not into truth anymore, we're into experience. It's to feel. It's to feel for me. So what person, you know, what happens doesn't feel? So there's a point in time when, well, who cares? People would say. And now that's no longer, not only even a discussion, oh, if it's not working for you, so then, okay, well then, do something else that does work for you. When people approach you and they acknowledge, let's say, your religiosity, there's no conflict. There's no war in religions in the Western world. Well, the attitude is, well, if it works for you, you should do it. Oh, that's amazing. It's so nice. I'm so proud that you found something. Oh my gosh. I've got a friend who's a Zoroastrian. He also enjoys his life. In other words, all nature is that there's no truth. There's no one given reality. It's each one's up to it. It's like a matter of taste. So you happen to feel that Judaism tastes nice. Gurakasha, enjoy it. That's your flavor. But by the way, don't, don't even think about imposing that on others. Because it's not real. It's what you think in your mind that you'd like to live your life. It's a lifestyle choice. So we moved from life to lifestyle. It's no longer about life, it's about lifestyle. Some people prefer a lifestyle because the truth is, a religious lifestyle is quite fulfilling. You manage to hang on to the family unit and you have these like 
weekly meetings over the Shabbat table, which is like really nice and there's good food and it's such a convivial atmosphere, it's really worthwhile. And your children, you know, you kind of bring them up with morals that makes them like less likely to fall prey to drug addiction. And you know, your, your, your little kind of kids, they're not exposed to pornography before the age of 12. So it's like it has advantages. So, you know, as a lifestyle, it makes a lot of sense. It's, it's not a bad idea. We should go for that. You know, that's, that's a nice lifestyle. But of course, you know, don't be extreme after all. It's only a lifestyle choice. And of course, if you're not enjoying it, then you happen to think that, you know, you'd, you'd prefer to have a much more uh, exciting life. And you decide that you don't really, you're not interested in having a family or, or settling down. And you'd like to spend your time sailing around the Bermudas and working on your surfing. Okay. Fine, you do that. So when you don't have this edge on choice, and everything is just lifestyle, so then what happens is all deep satisfaction is sucked out of your life because there's absolutely nothing meaningful about what you can do. It's not life or death. If you're not willing to die for it. So then your life's not willing, worth living. If it's not important enough to die for, so then what's there in your life? It means that you have no life. You have an existence. Maybe we walk around for longevity is increased now, 80 years, maybe 90. A lot of people, the last 10 years, are spent in dementia. And then you get put into a urn in the wall of some crematorium. And that was it. He played a good game of golf, they say. Wow. He owned one of the nicest condos in Boca Raton. Geschmack. Something to think about. Something to think about. Something to think about in our modern context. Or maybe it's not. Or maybe it's not. Maybe it's not. Maybe we should just like give in and say, listen. There was a time when people were interested in truth, and now we're interested in fun. So let's go the fun route. What's wrong with a bit of fun? What's wrong with a lot of fun? What's wrong with a life based on fun?